Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be covering two chapters, chapters 11 and 13. So follow along as I read for us this portion of God's word. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming home from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What's wrong with the people? That they're weeping. So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Paul said, Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, 
And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And then moving to chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear! And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs, and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the, fe- the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you didn't come within the days appointed, and and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people were went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeath of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual, Another company turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there were no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, 
lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshare and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's pray. Lord, we are able to open your book, but we're not able to open our eyes or our ears or our souls to receive and understand your truth so that we pray together tonight that your spirit for your glory and for our change and transformation will do what we cannot do but what you seem to delight in doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's think together first about the necessary history and the context in our desire and our need to understand and learn from these two chapters. We have a lot to cover, and we won't be able to take the time to deal with some of the, um, the exegetical problems. And there are, some, there are some problems here with numbers, folks. Uh, but we, we, we're going to stick to the main elements in this narrative and, uh, and know that there are some answers and some things that we need to consider and others, scholars, consider for us, and we can learn from them. But we think together tonight, and this is the necessary history in the context. How are nations governed or or ruled? How how does that work? Well, we know that you can have rule by a few people. We call that an oligarchy, rule by a few. Or we can say we know that there are are times when uh, the people, many, a democracy, there's a rule by the people. And then we also know that there can be ruled by one, a monarchy, But the nation that is in view here was brought into being miraculously by God. They were to be a nation not like any other nation. In time, this would become known as a theocracy. God was their king. The Lord God, king of the universe, was the king of Israel. That's quite a king to have. Of course, this meant that God had supreme authority and God had supreme power. His laws were to be their laws, and this nation was not like any other nation. This theocratic nation is developing, and there are many things that they need to know about their king their God, and there are many things that they needed to learn about their own hearts. You know, this people had had other nations make raids, threaten their peace and their prosperity. 
And so we know that God raised up the judges to drive the enemies out. And at least temporarily, that seemed to work. This nation, which was not like any other nation, began to desire to be like every other nation. They wanted a king. That they already had a king. They had a king that was invisible, but they wanted a king, a king that they could see, a king that in fact would stand head and shoulders above others. He was handsome. He was strong. They could see him. They could follow him. They wanted to follow him. A king after their own hearts. We were reminded last Sunday night about the last and the greatest judge that the Lord raised up, Samuel. And he told the people of their great wickedness, remember? But also we saw last week that he not only told them of their great wickedness in wanting a king because they already had a king, it was Yahweh, but also that because of the glory of the king Yahweh, these people belong to him, and for his own name's sake, he would not forsake them. So Samuel told them about their wickedness, but he also told them about the love of this God, their invisible king. What kind of love is that? To love the very ones who have rejected you. That's love. That's love. When there's a lot more wickedness to come and and folly and there's a lot more grace to come in this ongoing development, not only of the nation of Israel, but the drama of redemption and the kingdom of God. So at the Lord's instruction, Samuel, who had functioned as a judge, a prophet, and a priest, he now becomes a kingmaker. And he anoints the first king of Israel. Because God is the king, if there is a king, he must know his place before the king. Did you follow that? That's the meaning of theocracy. And that is what we must keep in mind as we think together about these two chapters tonight. That's the necessary context. That's the necessary history so that we begin to have a feel for what's going on here and to make sense of this particular narrative. Now we begin to think about Nahash. He was king of the Ammonites. And this king led his army from the Transjordan to the east of Israel, and he, and, he, and he surrounded, he besieged Jabesh Gilead. Gotcha. It's all over. They're surrounded. Where are you going to go? The army is all around you? Gotcha. So only thing that makes sense is to ask, what are the, what are the terms, uh, the treaty terms? And Nahash is the one in the position to dictate the terms of this treaty. And you read what it is. Gouge out your right eye.
You know, in the ancient Near East, uh, there are many times when if you lost a war, you also ended up losing a body part. They would take the warriors and they'd cut off an ear. They'd, they'd cut off a hand. They would gouge out an eye. Remember, that was the case actually with Samson after Samson was finally defeated by the Philistines. In this case, to take the right eye would effectively take away for a whole generation your ability to defend yourself. Because warfare in those days was the shield was held in the left hand and the shield covered the left eye. That left only your right eye to conduct war. There was no Geneva Convention If you were defeated, it meant you could be mutilated and certainly disgraced. What a situation to be in. And so Jabesh Gilead says, would you give us seven days? So now the word goes out. Is there a Savior? Is there somebody that will come and save us from Nahash, the Ammonite king? Oh, I hope the irony just smacks you in your heart, in your mind. The people who belong to King Yahweh are saying we have no deliverer. We have no savior. We have no king to lead us, no warrior to lead us against Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. The Spirit of God rushed on Saul. He musters the troops and defeated King Nahash and the Ammonites, and a great victory caused great rejoicing. Now, Jabesh Gilead actually never was saved, and, and, and they never forgot what Saul did for them. In 1 Samuel 31, we find that later when Saul will actually die in battle, he and his son's bodies will be hung on the wall at Bethshan to disgrace them. And the men of Jabesh Gilead traveled through the night, took those bodies off the wall, and returned them that they might be honored rather than disgraced. But back to Jabesh Gilead and the defeat of King Nashon under King Saul. I imagine the excitement. Did you, did you see? Did you see what our king did? Did you see him? Did you get a look at him? There he was leading the troops. Boy, do we have a king. We wanted a king. This is the kind of king we wanted, and we've got one. Oh, man. Just what we wanted. It's what we needed. We're ready to follow him. Chapter 11 closes with... Quote, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Verse 15. Would you notice that Samuel's name is not mentioned there? And it doesn't seem like the kinds of things which Samuel shared with them back in chapter 8 are a part of the thinking at this point at all. You know, the Ammonites were to the east 
and they had been trouble for Israel. Would you believe that they had trouble from the other side as well? They were pressed on the west by the Philistines. It wasn't just that Nahash and the Ammonites had come from the east. There was the eastern border problem. But now there's the western border problem. What an ugly sandwich. Ammonites, Philistines. And the problem with the Philistines, they were much more numerous. And the problem with the Philistines, they also had iron swords and iron spears. And Israel did not have in fact, as we, as we read near the end, I mean, you wanted to get your, 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 your farm implements sharpened? You had to go to the Philistine. In some cases, pay a month's wages to get one of your farm tools sharpened. But their king is going to have to deal with the Philistines and the Ammonites. He did very well against the Ammonites, didn't he? I mean, it looks like a very strong beginning. This is, this is a great start. What a wonderful victory it was. Everybody was celebrating the victory over King Nahash of the Ammonites. And now we've got to deal with these Philistines. But the problem here now is that the people are trembling. They're, they're hiding in holes. They're hiding anywhere they can. Trembling, we read. And this sets up for us what we would call, after a necessary context in history, now we have to think about Saul's necessary sin. Necessary sin. They're waiting word from King Yahweh. His spokesman is Samuel. You see, the king, Yahweh, had told Saul, excuse me, had told Samuel to tell Saul, go to Gilgal and you wait for further instructions. In fact, wait seven days. Seven days. And Samuel will bring some more direction, some more important instruction that will come from the king. The king has instruction and direction that must be followed and obeyed by the king with a small k. You see, that's really the way that a theocracy must work. The human king is to be obedient to the divine king's will and direction and instructions that will come through the divine king's prophet. Well, that's all well and good, but there's a problem now. Can, can you appreciate the problem? There's an emergency that's developing here. It's the seventh day. So hasn't Saul already done what Samuel asked him to do, told him to do? In chapter 10, verse 8? Well, it seems so. And, and Samuel's not here yet. So maybe something came up for the, you know, Samuel, he's probably, something came up. He wasn't able to come yet. 
And Saul realizes that there's a problem with deteriorating morale in the troops. They're, they're now not so sure. And it seems like the more time that passes, they're not so sure that, they wanna, that they're ready to follow Saul into battle in the same way. This is an emergency. The army's losing some of their resolve. Well, Saul knows that what you must do is seek God's, God's direction and blessing, and, and you can do that in a prescribed way. If, if you just offer these particular sacrifices, this is what's required. You do this to seek God's favor, God's blessing. So, so let's do that. We'll do that. We must do that. And that was done. So that they might be ready to go out to battle and have a similar result to what had happened when they faced the Ammonites. I'm not... Would that really be a sin? If you're doing that like that? If you're thinking of it that way? It's an emergency? It's what he sees? The king sees very clearly and he, and he thinks and he feels this is the important thing to do. This is what's happening. This is the right action to take. And it makes God's word unnecessary because I see clearly what needs to be done. I know what has to happen here. After all, I'm a very successful military leader. This is necessary. From Saul's perspective. But this necessary sin produces necessary judgment, punishment. The pressure that Saul felt, the good war knowledge that this warrior had, going through the religious prescriptions, those were his excuses to offer to the divine king for his actions. But Saul's wisdom was in fact folly. It was foolish. In all his justifications, they all added up to disobedience, not innocence. And disobedience is necessarily punished. You did notice the punishment here too, didn't you? Well, the punishment that we're thinking about right now is not that his sons would not sit on his throne in the future. I mean, that sounds like punishment, and it is in some way. But did you see the punishment that should have terrified him? Samuel left him. Samuel was the one who received instruction from the divine king that was then delivered to Saul, the king. And if Samuel's not there, Saul's on his own. Israel's divine king gave instructions through his prophet to the king of Israel. But the most glorious thing is that with our necessary self-excused sin, self-justified sin, and God's necessary punishment, there 
is his utterly necessary grace. Yes, his utterly necessary, extraordinary grace. Isn't that something? You see, salvation was never because Israel had a king. (laughs) No! Salvation was because of Yahweh's divine king having the Spirit rush upon their king, Saul. But Saul the king forgot that he was always first Saul, the subject servant of the great king. You see, Gilgal was a place of covenant renewal in Israel's history, and, but now it's a place of royal folly, failure, and disobedience. And you have to keep back, coming back on, on Sunday nights as the story of a king after the people's heart kind of then merges and moves into a king after God's heart. And ways that we see the development of this kingdom. And wasn't it wonderful this morning to hear Pastor Light talking about this king too? This warrior? You see, Saul was God's instrument in the beginning to bring victory for God's people. But you have to appreciate this. It's a complicated story. Here's a question for you. Was it against God's will to have a king? Or was it God's will that Israel have a king? Answer, yes. What? Yes. We learned last week that there was a wickedness in in the people saying they want a king. And they know the kind of king they were looking for. And they got the kind of king they were looking for. They kept asking for a king. So, did they get a king only because they kept asking for a king? They got what they asked for, but this first king, and subsequently all kings, will fail. They did fail. They must fail we can even say. Because that is part of preparing the people for their king. The king of Israel is a warrior, is a savior, is a deliverer who saves and rules over his people. In fact, the end of the story of human history, you know what it is? The end of the story of human history is that the elect from Israel and the nations will find themselves living in a theocracy, living under the rule of King Yahweh, giving glad submission and perfect loving obedience to the great king of the kingdom of God. Do we need here tonight to make this place now, Gilgal? Are our hands and our heads 
and our hearts full of sin that we have had no problem whatsoever in justifying to ourselves and justifying to anybody else that would want to ask that our sin was not sin. Our sin was necessary. Our sin is not really obedience, disobedience. Is it necessary for us tonight to renew our allegiance to the King of the Kingdom of God and thank Him for His utterly necessary grace? At this time in our election season as a nation, is this not the time for us to renew our allegiance to the King of the kingdom of God? I think it's a challenge for us to know how to live as theocratic citizens in a constitutional republic. But I know that a start to that would be for each of us to kneel now in our hearts and do that. Renew our allegiance to the King of the Kingdom of God. Because make no mistake, brothers and sisters, The King is here. I'm going to take just a moment but ask each of us to quietly where we are here in this place tonight that we make into Gilgal. Renew your allegiance to the King of the Kingdom of God. Let's pray. Oh, our King, we are so practiced, so good at excusing ourselves, justifying ourselves, but by your Spirit, bring to us a fresh understanding of our disobedience of our sin that we might glory glory in your grace and we might desire because of your spirit at work in us to give glad submission to you our sovereign So many things to occupy our minds, our hearts, our attention. So many things that ask for our allegiance. May we renew our allegiance, our commitment to you, our King, and to your kingdom which has no end.
while we live in a very confusing time in our history as a nation. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.